Welcome to Success Stories, the podcast where outstanding women share their journey to leadership, the personal habits that have helped them succeed, and the projects they're passionate about. Join me, your host, Catherine Robson, as we redefine what success looks like. In a world of anxiety about the future of work, Liv Penny is harnessing the power of technology to engage kids, some as young as nine, to shape their ideal career destiny. Liv is the co-founder and CEO of Become, an education startup which is bringing together the worlds of academia and innovation to deliver career development which inspires and excites young people. Liv has a master's in psychology, a graduate certificate in career development, and has 18 years of career experience in advertising, product, and experience design. Liv's mission in life is to give more kids a shot at their happiest possible future. Liv, great to see you. Great to see you. You're working on a really exciting educational program. Can you explain a bit about what it is and how you came up with the idea? Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me. Yes, our product has become... Uh, And we're really redesigning how career development is experienced for young people today. We know that the future of work that's here already is dynamic and ever-changing. And the current career development model that's been in place for almost 50 years without changing is just a bit too little too late to prepare kids kind of with the adaptive skills that are going to train them to navigate that. It's always been focused on one decision late in high school And then when that decision, when they get stuck or knocked off course, which we know they do within kind of 18 months, they get stuck. And then we've got this huge underemployment and unemployment problem because we haven't taught people the skills to be able to navigate and explore and design their lives for themselves. So that's sort of challenging the idea that, you know, when we say to kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And we're expecting them to say dentist or fireman or doctor, saying actually it needs to be much more flexible than that. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and actually that's one of the um, the pieces of advice we give to parents and teachers to move away from that question of, you know, what do you want to be as if there was that one magic answer to, you know, what sort of problems do you want to solve in the world? How do you like to solve those problems? Which gives them a much broader target to aim at. They get to know the skills that they like to use and the kind of roles that they'd like to play, but it doesn't mean they're one job for life because obviously that's just not the reality. And when you talk about young people, you're talking about much younger people than you would expect to be thinking about career. Completely. Um, We actually start the programme in years four to eight and that is in primary school absolutely yeah in upper primary um we know all the evidence points to you know they are absolutely thinking about it at that time and there's there's been a lot of backlash the the um as as more policy comes into place saying it has to start in primary school a lot of people kind of throw their arms up and say let kids be kids let kids be kids like but i think that the point to make there is that we're not trying to force them into a decision And we believe that thinking about your kind of adult role in the world is actually a really innate part of development. We know that kids from toddler age kind of start playing with these roles of, you know, they start by pushing a pram or being a builder. It's a real natural way of finding your own place in the world. What we've done is stop talking about it for a long time at school. So what we're trying to do is continue that process of letting them explore and be curious. We think that future and imagining your future of possibilities should be the most motivating thing anyone can think about. It's absolutely human nature to be able to imagine, 
But at the moment, we're only letting people imagine the negative. So we're seeing, we know that um, I had a room of 25 10 to 12 year olds last week and we said you know what will the world look like in uh, eight years time and without prompting and these were really enthusiastic positive kids they said tech's going to take over the world there'll be no jobs the robots will do all our jobs not even going to have a chance to get my own driving license because the robots are going to drive our cars and then one of them said and the difference between rich and poor will be massive and these are 10, 11-year-old kids, there wasn't an ounce of optimism, but you could hear the headlines coming through. Um, so when we say, let kids be kids, stop talking to them about this, they're thinking about it. There was some research last year that said, um, it was the ABC research that ranked kids from 10 years on what their main worries were, what worried them at the most about their life in, their, in every facet of it. And over cyberbullying, real-life bullying, body image, uh, their future was at number one. It far outweighed it. So we know that they're already thinking about it. We just want to make it positive and give them options and aspirations. When it feels like, like you say, technology is the big disruptor to human being careers, but you're using technology to be the answer to that problem. So how are you doing that? So we start with, well, we're actually been doing it in a blended model as well as using the tech so that we know that it works. Those learning outcomes are really impacting the kids in real life. And then we're translating it into the, the digital product as each of those kind of initiatives we can see working and igniting people and getting them excited. Um, so the first, we're actually building this a long-term AI entity that will be your personalised guide for your life and career. So it's almost a framework for your lifelong learning. And when you say AI entity, it's like a learning algorithm that gets to know you based on yeah. how much you interact with it. Is that right? Yeah, and it's going to give you the next best step. We know what those healthy, adaptive behaviours and how open and exploratory you should be and how you should be able to take action and dive down these rabbit holes when something inspires you. And they're the adaptive behaviours we're trying to train. So our algorithm is never going, here's the answer. We know all about you, you've done these interest tests, and here's your, we've spat out the answer, like computer says, doctor. We don't do that. We want them to find it for themselves. So it's a, it's a really ongoing, best next conversation to have with them. So you're building, as you say, an integrated model. So the AI part of it is one part. How does it fit together with that broader model that you're building? So the first product market is um, coming to life as a web app. Um, so that will be a web app delivered in schools with lots of learning materials and teacher resources to help them augment it in the classroom. Um, the older age groups will obviously be more on their mobile devices, so we'll reach them through through their own personal life. We'll be where they are. And what's the response been like so far from the education community? Far better than a lot of uh, when we first talked about it. Um, and I spoke to investors about it. They're like, oh, don't want to touch education with a barge pole. It's so hard to sell into schools. Um, you know, the departments are the nightmare to navigate. I'm so much more optimistic about the education in Australia and beyond. Um, f over the last 12 months, the conversations have become much easier. I think there's a tidal wave of change coming and the awareness about how much we need to change the education system um, is really growing. And the principals and department people I've come across, you know, some, some are like, what are you doing? You're crazy. Why are we doing this? Like, I've got so much curriculum to do and, you know, the test scores. 
but so, really, really growing number, uh, really progressive, really innovative, know that this whole of student approach is the future um, and are creating the space to, to do this because it's right for the kids. It's not about, you know, they're not obsessed by the test scores. They're doing what's right for the outcome. And in an ideal world, would you love to see your product, your algorithm, getting to know kids right from that sort of year four stage and building that relationship with kids in the classroom and at home all the way through then until when they finish school? Is that yes. sort of the vision? Yes, absolutely. So as I say, it's kind of your framework for your lifelong learning. And when you're completely fine with it, then that's fine. But I think there's different needs at different stages. So, you know, we know that even into adulthood and a lot of the adults we've talked about and shown, you know, how it works, a lot of people say, oh, I need that. <laughs> I really need, you know, we never stop changing. So, so actually there's scope for it to be a, a longer term tool. And as you say, we never stop changing. I mean, for you, becoming a tech entrepreneur is a bit of a change from what you've done in the past. So how have you come to this point? What was the sort of lead up to, to find yourself in this position as a founder? It was actually a, a huge circle uh, and it kind of made sense at the end, but not in the middle. Um, so... I started off doing, I was obsessed by how people think and, and had a real belief that based on the school I was at and there was so many different people uh, with so many different views, it, was a real, it wasn't like everyone was rich, it was a real mix of socioeconomic. And that was in the UK? In the UK. What part of the UK? In Northamptonshire. Yeah. And were you a good student? I was a really nerdy good student and in primary school I had a lot of friends that were nerdy good students and as it got to later primary school... I could see some of the some of the people that were awesome and really had massive potential and should just kind of drop off. And I was, for me, he was like super optimistic about what was going to happen. I, was just, I can't, couldn't understand what they were doing. You know, they were tying firecrackers to cat's tails and going joyriding and bunking off school. I was just like, oh, I could see like you're cutting off all your options for what's exciting. So. That's what kind of made me um, try to unpick, like, why, why are people behaving that way? What are they thinking? Um, and so I went off and did my master's in psychology, still really obsessed by this. You know, I didn't want postcode to be destiny, and I really felt like if we got in at the right time, everyone could have more options, and it shouldn't be that, you know, if you grow up in this and you've seen four or five generations of unemployment, then that's where you go, or if your family are all doctors, you have to be a doctor. So that was kind of what the starting point. Um, and you studied at the University of St Andrews? So I was at St Andrews, yeah. And is that where Prince William went to? Yes, I missed him by a year, actually. But uh, So then you moved from psychology into advertising. Well, every time I went to draft my PhD, which was, again, so I'd done my dissertation on the impact of aspiration at what age and, you know, the cognitive changes associated with it. Every time I drafted my PhD, people would say, make it smaller, make it smaller. And I did that kind of four or five times. It was my plan. And they said, look, you're just basically trying to solve the underclass and, and solve social mobility and equity. And I said, well, yes, a little bit. <laughs> um, and there's a, a fantastic professor, Susan Greenfield, Baroness Susan Greenfield. Who has also appeared on this. Ah! Yeah, so she... Um, was here in Australia recently and was very kind to um, participate um, in this podcast and she was just an inspiration to speak She's to. She's amazing. And I went to see her and said to her, like, I've, I've got an issue. Like, so was she, but she, she was, was neuroscience. Yeah. So this was to do PhD. Yeah, okay. She was kind of a, in, introduced as a mentor and I said to her, what do I do? Like, 
And uh, she said, I think you know the answer already to the problem you're trying to solve. And I said, I absolutely do. And she said, well, you've just proven you're not an academic. And she said, you're too impatient and too practical. Go and find another way to solve it. She said, you don't want to spend eight years not proving the thing you already know. So, um, and I think that was the best advice I ever had because I absolutely would have spent eight years in a, something that slowed me down and frustrated me. So I ran off to London and thought I'll use my psychology powers for evil for a while and, uh, and work in advertising. Uh, and it was fantastic. It was a great career. It brought me out to Sydney um, 12 years ago now. And then as advertising shifted to more digital innovation and creating valuable products for people, um, it was much more about product development and, um, and real... Um, as companies try to provide value for, for brands rather than telling, shouting at people, I suddenly realised, I think we just, uh, we just won a big pitch for the year and it was a big global brand and nobody had used this technology before and everyone else was like, oh, this is so exciting. And I was just like, I, I don't care. <laughs> I suddenly, I was just like, I've worked out how I can solve this. And I got back to, uh, this is the problem I wanted to solve. So I just suddenly realised this has given me the backswing to come and solve it the other way. Well, and presumably all of that advertising background and practical hands-on experience in the commercial world will be essential in terms of building something that people want to use. So there's no problem building a product that's fabulously sophisticated if there's actually no users. No, exactly. So I think that... That kind of product market fit, understanding the audience insights, the marketing side of it and the brand, but also I think really the the management experience and the commercial experience and the customer management. Um, I think I did the Edgy Growth Accelerator last year and I think there's a lot of really young people start coming out of uni and going, hey, I'm going to start something up. And the, it was amazing the bits that they were stumbling on were the bits for me. I was just like, oh, you just hire people, build a culture. You know, that's the easy bit. <laughs> so it was, it's funny to come from the other side. I think one of the challenges of becoming an entrepreneur once you've established yourself in a career is not only leaving the security of a regular paycheck, but also leaving the security of having uh, an identity in, in the sort of framework of our yeah. society, having a job title. How was that experience for you? It was kind of liberating, actually, because part of me had always been pulled that way. And I've been on the board of School Aid, which was kind of helping me uh, still do some good in that area in, in parallel to advertising. For me, it felt like it was the right shift. And I think most people that knew me kind of went, oh, that's that makes sense. Um, it was, you know, a bit of an explanation to people in the new world to go, oh, well, this was the whole circle and this is why I'm still doing it and this is where it came from. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a shift and people, you know, to go from kind of respected and the top and go, like, oh, I'm established in this area to going from to absolutely the bottom. But I think that's, that's a humbling and good experience <laughs> rather than uh, floating around and hobnobbing with the seniors. It's good to go, right, I'm at the bottom it was a shock. I think the biggest shock was how resourceful we have to be. I think I, um, the first kind of few weeks of, like, we'd gone out and launched, I kept turning around to, you know, who's going to design this little animation I need? Or I kept thinking, there'll be somebody, there'll be somebody I can do this, and there's nobody there. It's just me. So it's, uh, it was amazing how resourceful and how quickly you have to learn things. But it's, I think it's, it's a really good exercise when you've... 
And finding a co-founder, so how was, I mean, interestingly, I think there's a good amount of research in terms of there's a heightened success where you have two or three founders, one's often not enough and more than four is too many. How have you found that experience? I was very lucky, actually. Um, I I knew I needed a really heavy-hitting tech co-founder who shared the vision, had the time and uh, and money and capital behind them to actually invest uh, in the early stages um, and come with me on the journey of noodles and um, and somebody that was uh, across the full stack of architecture and actually could I could really trust to do best practice architecture and rigor around it rather than sticking in their lane of this is the type of thing I knew so. Um, I'd worked with a lot of tech directors over the years in my other roles, um, so I kind of knew what I was looking for, and it was a chance meeting in the Sydney startup community, and it was actually a a good friend who was the CEO of EduGrowth, who who actually was on the lookout as well, and I had everybody I knew looking for this right person, exactly the right brief. Um, and David and I met a few times and discussed things and, you know, we had a, a lot of sessions just to work out the cultural fit um, and we talked very openly about any concerns around each other and he said, well, you know, you, it's, you've got the idea, it's really, you know, I'm going to challenge it. And I was just like, fantastic, that's what I want. I don't want someone to, uh, Agree to, build, to build what's in my head because I've got the strategy and the idea, but I want the magic. Um, and I said, well, this is the biggest test. And he said, right, be prepared. I'm going to come in blue sky and I'm going to tell you what my vision for the product is. And uh, I was blown away and we were so excited. And then we, uh, we agreed on the spot and it's been fantastic. And um, you mentioned Capital there, looking for a co-founder that had some resource behind them. How has your experience been funding the development so far? Um, well, we were both lucky that we could put 100% of our time into it. Um, and, you know, it takes a lot of sacrifice and commitment. Um, but we were lucky in that sense, so that we've actually been kind of self-sufficient. We raised our first round in November 2017. Um, it was as slow as everyone said it was going to be. I didn't believe them at first. I thought, everyone's really positive about the idea. Um, it'll be easy and everyone, you know, there's lots of nods and encouragement. Not many checks. Not many checks coming out. So it was, it was as slow as everyone said. It probably took us uh, four months to close that round. And was it hard not to take it personally when people weren't as enthusiastic about it, the idea as you were or that people didn't front up when they said that they were thinking about it? It wasn't about taking it personally, but every time there was a knockback, I had to go back to the product vision and go... Well, most of them were very good at giving reasons why and what their concerns were. So, in fact, the actual... It actually really shaped the business strategy. Um, Some of it I ignored, obviously, but some of it were really good points. Um, So we were really conscious to make sure that everybody that said no, we hounded them until they told us exactly why. And a lot of it was... Um, you know, don't know the sector well enough, which is, you know, completely understandable. And we want investors that do know it and are passionate about the project. So I think the hardest thing, it wasn't about being personal. Uh, it was more about going back to the product and going, no, this is awesome. Absolutely, this is good. And this is why we're doing it. So making those refinements, but making it stronger rather than chip, letting people chip away at it. And in terms of finding investors, how easy is it to have four months' worth of 
meetings with people. I mean, that's the other thing in terms of it's one thing to get a business card written and call yourself a founder, but actually raising capital. How do you go about doing it? It was it's a full-time job for that period of time. So I think within the business you have to agree who's doing what. And that means that, you know, David took on a lot of those responsibilities that I was doing before. Um, we paused on a lot of sales um, and just said, actually, we've got to focus here, do it fast and sharp and intense. You can spend a lot of time in the wrong place. And I think the, a lot of people want to chat and find out, but even though they, they might know already that you're too early stage for them. So I think if I was giving advice, it would be to be really selective about and really realistic about who your target investor is at that stage, not later, because it can be easy to be flattered by everyone saying, hey, yes, absolutely, come along and pitch, come along and pitch. But if it's not right, it's not going to happen, and it's just going to waste time. So I think finding out what the, um, what the investment history is of each, whether it's a group or an event or a, a, a VC or a group of angels, finding out what their what their regular deal is. And practically, you know, is there a magical list of all, these are all the people that you can raise money from, or how do you... There is a magic list, actually, <laughs> yeah. So, Airtree put together a Google Sheet that is free to everybody to access and keep updated, and that's got the angels, the VCs, the family trusts, everyone, and everyone that's raising money. So that wasn't actually that, that magic for me, but it, was, it is a magic list. And presumably once you start with one, you get a sense of what the others might be, so it's just that getting started phase, presumably. Yeah, I think it, oh, we were lucky because we were in the Edgy Growth Accelerator, so we had the momentum from a big demo day that someone else had organised. And I think the other thing is knowing the vertical, so not being blinded by, hey, this is a startup event. Most of our most of our success came comes from people, advisors, um, introductions within the ed tech space. Um, and I'm sure it's the same for the other verticals. So sticking in your vertical would be the way to go. So as you say, you've had some experience being in an incubator. Um, what other advice would you have for startups around what inputs they can access for their business to help it grow that might not be actually equity capital? Oh, the, um, there's a huge amount of government grants, state and federal. Um, I'm not sure whether there is a magic list for those, but there should be. Um, but there's I think a, there's that lots the of um, business.gov website has quite a good summary. Yeah. All the entrepreneurial ones, yeah, the whole entrepreneurial um, program is there. Um, and we've actually been successful in the Accelerating Commercialisation Grant. Congratulations. Because uh, that's a very rigorous process. It is. It's rigorous and uh, it's a long one, but it's uh, fantastic. And you get a lot of support that comes with it. So there's a, you know fantastic advisors that come along with that uh, to make sure that you're on track. Um, so it's not just paperwork. There's actually a lot of value that goes into the process as well. Um, yeah, there's, there's that one, there's, um, and then there's the New South Wales Innovation and Jobs for New South Wales, and I think each state has, has similar. So there's a huge amount of capital opportunity out there. Um, all have application forms, so, um, but I think it's worth it. Well, and as you say, presumably it's about being clear inside your organisation who's going to be doing what and acknowledging that someone's going to have to put the time and effort into actually liaising with those potential funders um, and making that happen. In terms of other advice that you would have 
for someone who's starting off with a good idea? Um, based on your experience so far, obviously well supported um, with capital and been really successful um, with feedback um, from government and government grants, what's your um, pearls of wisdom in terms of what you should be focusing on? I really do think getting into the network of that vertical, especially if you're coming from outside outside that sector or slightly a slight tangent to that sector. So, and by vertical, you mean that Is sort of education, education stream. So if you've yeah. got something that relates to finance, the fintech stream, yeah. or if you've got a medical, medical yes. technology, the medtech stream. Yeah. And I think that probably opens a lot more doors than the generic startup world. I mean, obviously everyone wants, needs to read like all the, the basic startup uh, blogs and books and everything. But I do think the most value we've got was from the, the ed tech vertical and the advice of people that have done exactly the same challenges of you and and everyone's so generous with their time and advice when they've been through it it's it's fantastic so find find that little community um of that vertical and and be really active in it and you mentioned podcasts and books any favorites along the way that uh have really helped you or that you feel like uh you would recommend to other people venture deals is was very good having not raised before. It's a bit dry, but very good, very useful. Um, and is that more like a handbook? I mean, would you read that for fun or do you no, read that if you're raising capital? you'd read that if you're raising capital. And actually, all of those books I read on my iPad and that's like work. That's yeah. like I'm learning now. Yeah. Um, but if you say what book would you recommend, I'd always say a, a paper, <laughs> a paper yeah, book. Yeah. And I think my favourite ever, which I've read again and again, um, is it's almost like meditating. It's uh, the God of Small Things, and it's it's like it transforms you to a different world. And I actually think that having something like that, rather than being work, work, work all the time, I actually always have a kind of an escape book on the go as well, just to make sure you come come down and it's not all work. Well, and so that, um, in terms of a final point. Presumably when you're trying to launch something that's new, um, there's never enough resources in a small <laughs> startup that you would ideally want. How do you balance that in your, in your life, the investment you make in your business, but also trying to maintain your own physical and mental health? I think every day is like, I kind of have to treat it. I've got two little kids. So How old are your kids? Five and seven. So it's like every day... I'm catching a flight at six o'clock. So everything has to be done. And it's that, I think, working in the, in the hours I have, working at that speed and that focused and prioritisation is essential. So I almost treat it like I am on a plane with no Wi-Fi from that time. Um, and then when I do get home, I make sure that I'm totally phone off, everything off, until the kids are in bed and I've had dinner with my husband and chatted and downloaded from the day. And then if there's stuff to do, I'd like to finish the list that was on the list for the day. Um, I do lots of yoga. And, uh, yeah, I think I just really try and make sure that there's time off is time off um, and just totally switch off because I think having a small amount of time with absolutely no connectivity is worth so much. And then just finally thinking about, you know, your kids and the, the things that you're positive about for the future for them, what are the things that you look forward and think, wow, I'll be really happy if that's the world that materialises? I'm really optimistic about the changes that are happening in education at the moment. And I think 
overall, everyone's, you know, panicked about the future of work and, you know, how are we going to, are we going to need a universal basic income? The robot's going to take all the jobs. I'm really optimistic that there's never been a better time to have the capacity to design a life or career that absolutely uniquely suits you. We don't need to be put in a box anymore and say, you are that job. We can have a portfolio, we can work from where we want, we can change as we go. I don't think there's ever been so much opportunity for people to be happy in what they do throughout their life if we give them the right skills. Oh, that's fabulous and it's a great motto. So um, lovely to spend time with you and good luck with the uh, upward trajectory of Become. Thank you so much. Every week I find a nugget of gold in each discussion, something I want to take away and implement in my own life. If you feel the same, I'd love to know how my guests touch your lives. You can leave a review on iTunes or get in touch on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks to the awesome Buffy Gorilla for production, Alicia Piper for her fantastic writing, and to Broke Free, who wrote and performed our theme music. See you next week.